Welcome to Dream Chasers Radio, where we are always daring to be different. Get ready, get ready, get ready to be inspired. Let's get moving toward our goals. And here to make that happen is our host, Yaya Diamond. All right, all right. We are daring to be different once more, once again. Welcome to the show. This is another edition of Dream Chasers Radio with your host, Yaya Diamond. And I am excited, um, definitely excited about this show, excited about all the guests that are coming on the show today. Um, I wanted to take this time to kind of inspire you, and I know I've been doing this a lot. And uh, I, I want to make sure that you are thoroughly inspired, thoroughly. So, I have a couple of things for you today, but before we get into that, please uh, note that you are listening to us on 97.5 FM Real Community Radio in North Fort Florida, as well as on Bobby B Radio and the Dream Chasers Radio Network. Thank you so much for being an avid listener of Dream Chasers Radio. I tell you, without you, we wouldn't be here. Nothing would be possible, Uh, but because of you, we're here, And, and that's the reason why I want to be encouragement to you. And hold on a second. I have like two microphones around my neck trying to figure out which one is better. <laughs> you know, as we go through this time in life, as we as we progress, as we get better at the things that uh, we aspire, we have some challenges along the way. And I want to I want to inspire you. Definitely want to inspire you. So I have a couple of pre-recorded audio from people who have you know, been out there and teaching for a long time. Not to say that um, I'm no good or anything like that. (laughs) It's just to say that, you know, it's like this. If it's not broken, don't fix it. That's pretty much where I'm at. (laughs) So with that in mind, let me go ahead and find my first one. My first pre-recorded audio is by Tony Robbins, and I like truthful. He's inspirational, but you have to be careful because let me tell you something. You can be inspired for the next two weeks, and then all of a sudden that inspiration will go right down the drain because you lose the momentum. So don't want you to lose the momentum. Always believe that you can and always keep the momentum going. Um, you know, people like Tony Robbins, myself, we can inspire you to do something, inspire you to be something, give you the, the, the motivation to move forward, but it's you who keeps that motivation moving, not us. Okay, so here we go. Here is Tony Robbins in Succeed. One of the critics, actually, that I once met said, yeah, Tony's techniques, they were great for about a year and a half, and then they wore off. <laughs> what do you say to that? Well, you don't, it, yeah, it's real simple. If you don't work out, you don't get a, you don't get a muscle, right? right? So I always tell people, this is there's a daily practice, like priming. If you don't do that, if you get up and you just have no discipline whatsoever, you get no value of anything. Your diets don't work when you don't do them. Exercise doesn't work when you don't do them. But most of the people have some experiences that they want to shift. And once you shift those things, your whole life changes. But life is constant growth. My life isn't here because I went to one seminar one time and now my life is fit for life. I, I work out. I train my mind. I train my body. It becomes a lifestyle. It's not just a, like you're depending upon somebody else. I'm not here to become somebody's guru. I'm not here to give them a gift. I'm here for them to open up their own gifts. And that's really what my work has been. People who succeed in any situation have a pattern of what they do to succeed. And it doesn't matter whether that person is succeeding in a business context or in a relationship context 
doesn't matter what the environment is. The fundamental lessons or laws for succeeding are very, very basic. So if we're looking for the ultimate success formula, the very first thing we have is you'd have to know what you want, which we call know your outcome. If you're going to succeed at anything, it's hard to succeed, hard to hit a target when you don't know what it is. And as simplistic as this sounds, do, no, do most people really know what they want? What do you think, yes or no? At least not consciously they don't, right? And so it's going to be very, very difficult to achieve what you want when you haven't defined it. But this is going to become a question we're going to want you to ask yourself a lot. What is my outcome in this situation? I even have a time management system that I developed. It's really a life management system, which we call OPA, because the first O sounds for what's my outcome. Because you can come up with a question like, what should I do? And you're going to end up with a long list. But as you do all these things, what will happen is you can cross something off your list and still be unfulfilled and not really achieve anything that matters. So you'll say, what's my outcome first? Then you begin to decide what you need to do to get the outcome. So in this case, we want to say, what's your outcome? You want to make it a habit to ask this question a lot. You're in the middle of a conversation. Stop yourself if it seems to go nowhere and say, what's my outcome here? Do I want to connect? Do I want to influence this person? Do I want to learn something? What's your outcome? For example, how many of you have ever been caught up in an argument and you even forgot what you're arguing for, but you knew you had to win. How many been there? Say I. Okay, if in the middle of that argument you were to ask yourself the question, what's my outcome here? I guarantee you your brain would say, well, my outcome is not to fight. My outcome is to resolve this. And as you get clear on what your real target is, your behavior will change automatically. So very, very few people know what they want. And the more you clear you can get about what you want, the more you can really achieve. You might write underneath this as a subset of number one, still number one, just like clarity is power. Clarity is power. The more clear you can become about what it is you really want, the more power you're going to have. Because your brain is like a servo mechanism in a, a bomb, as an example. When they send a missile out, it has a servo mechanism. It knows what the target is. And when the target moves, it follows it. Well, your brain is very similar. When you decide exactly what it is you want, you start picking up information that you never would have picked up before consciously. For example, have you ever bought a particular car maybe or maybe a certain outfit and then all of a sudden you see that car or outfit everywhere? How many have had that experience? Say aye. Well, was that car or outfit already around you all the time? Yeah, but you didn't notice it because there's a portion of your brain that is responsible for one thing and that is screening out 99% of what you see, hear, and feel in life. Because if you were to notice everything that's going on in this room right now, you go start craving mad. Well, most of you don't. You pay attention to a small number of things. If you could right now notice what? Millions of things. You could notice my voice. You could listen to what I'm saying. You could notice what's going on in the background, the screens. You could hear the air conditioning. You could smell your neighbor off to all that jumping up and down. Notice that. Right? You could feel the maybe a little sweat trickling across your chest or whatever was going on after all that jumping up and down. You could feel the blood maybe vibrating or circulating through your left eardrum. But you don't think about those things. So maybe I mention them or something triggers it. So this part of our brain that's responsible for deleting most of our thoughts and most of the things that are going on around us, that part of our brain, when, you know, when it knows what you want, it makes you notice those things. You suddenly see that car because it's important. It's called the reticular activating system. You don't have to write all that down. For short, it's called RAS. The reticular activating system tells your brain what to pay attention to. So when you say, this is what I really want, now, anything that relates to that that you wouldn't have noticed before will start popping up into your focus. And a lot of times people say, it's amazing. I decided this, and it was kind of 
you know, synchronicity. These things started popping up. Well, these things were probably around you before, but you never noticed them because you hadn't decided your outcome. Now, when you know your outcome, you're ahead of 95% of the population, but that's not enough. The second thing you got to know is a lot of times you know your outcome, but you lose your drive. You know, you want something, but you forget the most important thing, which is know why you want it. Know why you want it. You got to know the purpose. In our OPA training system, when people are managing their lives, we have them ask, what's my outcome? And then why do I want this? Because any person successful, really successful, knows exactly what they want and they know why. The reason you're going to know why is, remember I said yesterday, reasons come first, answers come second. If you have enough reasons, you can get a big enough why, you can figure out how to do about anything. But you've got to have purpose because purpose provides drive. Now, if you know what you want and you know why, you're light years ahead of most of the population. But you've got to go to the step that most people seem to avoid. And that is you've got to take massive what? That's right. And the key word there is massive. Massive action can be a cure-all when you know what you're after and you know why you want it. Because when you know what you're after, when you take action, you won't just be expending energy. You'll be moving yourself in a direction towards something you really, really want. And by the way, last night we called taking massive action personal what? Power, which means the ability to take action. And what stops people from taking action? Primarily what? Fear. And the way you get over that fear is what do you think is the number one fear most people have? Failure. And the reason is they feel if they fail, they won't be loved. They'll be rejected. They'll be hurt. They'll be judged. So what they really are afraid of is losing love. And they think that this rejection, or I should say this failure, will lead to that rejection or loss of love. The truth of the matter is you can't fail unless you don't try. If you try something that doesn't work, you just learn from it, and that will make you better the next time you go about it. Now, if you know your outcome, know why you want it, and take massive action, you're now in the most small percentile of people on the planet. So what's the next step, though? Well, you can take a lot of action and get caught up in a pattern. Like, you become so determined that you became like tunnel vision. Like, I know this is going to work. And so you keep running east looking for a sunset with total certainty and a lot of belief. High standards still doesn't work. So what you have to be able to do to succeed so you don't get caught up in some old pattern is you've got to know what you're getting. Know what you are. Know what you're getting. The word we use for this as for short, as we call it, sensory acuity. Sensory acuity is the idea that you want to become acutely sensitive to whether what you're doing is working or not. You don't want to just say, okay, I know what I want, I know what I want, and I'm just going to make it happen, this is how I'm going to do it. You keep hammering it and hammering it and hammering it, doing something that doesn't work. And people do this all the time, right? Do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. That's called insanity. You can't do the same thing again and again, expect a different result, when you can see it doesn't get the result. But we get caught up in our patterns. So we want to get really sensitized, acutely sensitized, sensory acuity, to whether what we're doing is working or not. And by the way, sensory acuity is really the measure of a person's intelligence. What I mean by that is how do we measure intelligence? Intelligence is a measure of the number and quality of distinctions you have in a given situation. Like, for example, if you talk to Eskimos, that's actually not the politically correct term anymore. I guess it's in a way. If you talk to an in a way, what we formerly called Eskimos, you'd find out that in a way have more than a dozen words for the word snow. More than a dozen. Now, I'm from Southern California. Guess how many words I have for snow? <laughs> One. I don't see any of it. It's called snow, baby. Right? But they've got to know what kind of snow. They've got to make more refined distinctions to be effective in the world, to get their outcomes. They've got to know what kind of snow you can build an igloo out of, what kind of snow you can take your dogs through, what kind of snow you can eat, right? what kind of snow you're going to fall through. 
So who has more intelligence, who has more power in that snowy environment, the Eskimo or me? Which one? Eskimo, because they have more sensory acuity. They have more refined distinctions about what each of these elements mean versus I just see it as snow. Now, if you took that Eskimo and you stuck him in my car in Los Angeles, then we'd find out that maybe I have a little more intelligence because he might try to steer the thing using the rearview mirror. Right? He just doesn't know. So since he doesn't have that acuity, he doesn't have those distinctions, he wouldn't do terribly well there. See, some people I could hold this up and I could say, what is this? And they'd say, well, it's a cylinder. Other people say, no, no, that's a blue, white, and black cylinder. Someone else says, no, no, that's a blue color marker. A few people say, no, 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 that's not just a blue color marker. That is a pilot, super color, bright and wide color marker. And if you get it in your clothes, it'll never come out. Now, which one of those people has more power? One, two, three, or four? Four, because they have the largest number of distinctions. So now, if you know your outcome, you know why you want it. You got your purpose. You got your drive. You got your A and OPA. This is outcome, purpose, action. You know the massive action. You're taking action. And you notice if it's working. What happens if you notice it's not working? You're taking action, but it's not getting you closer to your outcome. What's the obvious fifth step? The fifth step is change your approach. Change your approach. If what you're doing, your acuity says, is not working, change it. Now, what if you change your approach and that's still not working? Then what would you do? What would you do? Come on, what would you do? Change it again. Keep yourself in a peak state. Sit up in your chair. Some of you have gone back into that deep hypnotic state of learning, I can see. And what if you tried that and it didn't work? Then what would you do? What if that doesn't work? What do you do? And what if that doesn't work? What do you do? What if that doesn't work? What do you do? What if after all that it still doesn't work? What do you do? And what if you try that and it doesn't work? How many times? Until you find out what works. Do not say to yourself, I've tried everything. That's bull. If you tried everything, you'd have what you want. Well, I haven't tried everything, but I've tried millions of things. Millions? Number them. Name them. Well, maybe tens of thousands. Tens of thousands? Name a thousand. Well, maybe a hundred. Name a hundred. Well, maybe I did these two things over and over again that don't work. Okay? But when we start saying, I've tried everything, we tend to encant that, don't we? We make it an incantation, and then we believe it. And since we think we tried everything, we just give up. That's garbage. Not true. Hey, let me ask you a question. How long would you give your average baby to learn how to walk? You know, before you shut them off and didn't let them try anymore. You know, what are you, crazy? My kid's going to keep trying until he or she walks. Ah, magic formula. And when almost everything in the whole world walks. Okay? So this is the ultimate success formula. It comes down to knowing what you want, why you want it, taking massive action, know if it's working, and simply changing your approach until you get it. That's it. Anyone who succeeds does this. They may not call it Robin's ultimate success formula, but I guarantee they did it. An important example, Thomas Edison, these lights in here. Did this guy know his outcome, yes or no? Yes or no? He was absolutely clear without knowing the outcome. He couldn't have built that in a million years. It didn't exist before. He had to decide he wanted to create this result without the use of candles. Did he know why he wanted to do it? You bet. You read his writings. This man had a sense of incredible purpose and drive. Did he take massive action, yes or no? Oh, yes. Tens of thousands of experiments. Did he notice when it wasn't working and learn from it, yes or no? Did he keep changing his approach? That's why right now in this room we don't smell candlelight, right? Now, if you know the old story of him, it's written about him early in his early days. He says he's got his best friend with him. He's doing this experiment, and as he's doing it, he creates a small explosion which 
shakes the room, scares both of them very, very severely. And then at the end of that, he gets up, and his friend is totally shaken, freaked out. He pulls out his journal, and he starts writing. And his buddy says to him, what's the matter with you? Insane? You almost killed us. So you're going to wait till you have 10,000 failures before you give this stupid idea up? And Edison's response to him was, I didn't have a failure there. He goes, that's your 9,999th failure. He said, no, it's not. He said, I discovered the 9,999th way not to invent the electric light bulb. But I did discover how to create a small explosion, which may be useful in the future somewhere else. Uh, interesting, right? Because he understood what this process was. Hey, did Bruce Springsteen use this? Do you think he just went out and used his gravelly voice and said, hey, baby, born to USA, and everybody went, yeah, you're it, man. Is that what happened? No. What really happened, if you know his story, was that all the agents and people he went to try and book with said, just play the guitar and keep your mouth shut. Your voice is gross sounding. It's gravelly. It's irritating. No one is going to like the stuff. Keep your mouth shut and play the guitar. But he knew what he wanted. He had all the drive you can imagine. He knew why he wanted it. Took massive action. Kept changing his approach until he got what he wanted. How about uh, Sly Stallone, Sylvester Stallone, Rocky? Rocky's story is this even, right? But Sly's is too. Sly's a good friend of mine. And when I first met him years ago, he's listening to my tapes and stuff, and he invited me over for dinner. We started talking. And I said, you know, I've heard your story from other people, but I'd really love to hear it from the horse's mouth. I don't know how much is mythology, you know, urban myth, and how much is true. So he told me his whole story. He said the essence of it, though, was he said he knew his whole life what he wanted to do since he was very, very young. He wanted to be in the movie business, period. I mean, not just TV, movies. And he, just, he said why was, for him, it was a chance to have people not only escape, but to inspire people. And by the way, that drive is what made most of his movies, inspire people to what they're capable of, to overcome unbelievable obstacles, because in his own life he felt like he did that. When he was born, he was pulled out by the forceps. That's why he looked the way he did. That's why he talked the way he did. And he said, so I really want to do that. And he said, I knew why I want to do it, and I wasn't willing to settle for anything else. And he said, what happened was I went out to try and get jobs, and it's not like I went, hey, Adrian, they went, you, you're a star. It didn't work out real well. They looked at me and said, hey, you're stupid looking. Do something else. You know, what is it talking like this? There's no place for you in that stuff. You're never going to be a star in the movies. You're insane. No one's going to want to listen to somebody who looks dopey and talks out of the side of their mouth, right? And he got no after no after no after no. He said, I was thrown out more, more than 1,500 times of agents' offices in New York. I said, there aren't 1,500 agents in New York. He said, I know. I've been to them five, six, seven, eight, nine times. He said, I remember one guy I went in there, and I got in there at 4 o'clock, and he wouldn't see me, so I stayed there, and I would not leave. And I stayed overnight. They came back the next morning. I was still sitting there. He said, that's how I got my first job. The guy said, fine, come in here. And he sat down, and he went through this, and he gave my first movie. I said, oh, really? I thought Rocky was your first movie. He said, no, this other movie. I'd never heard of it. He said, I said, well, what character did you play? He said, well, I was in it for about 20 seconds. I was a thug that somebody beat up. He said, because they made me feel like, you know, somebody, people hate your guts. You getting beat up, it'll be a good thing. And he did like three movies like that. Never got anything. Kept going out. Rejection, rejection, rejection. So finally he realized it wasn't working. So he changed his approach. He said, I was starving, by the way. He said, I couldn't pay for even to have heat in my apartment. My wife was screaming at me every day to go get a job. I said, well, why didn't you? He said, because I knew that if I got a job, he said, I'd get seduced back and I'd lose my hunger. He said, I knew that the only way I could do this is if it was the only choice, if I burned all other bridges. Because if I did a normal job, pretty soon I'd be caught up in that rhythm and that stuff, and I'd feel okay about my life, and I'd feel like my dream would just gradually disappear. He said, I wanted to keep that hunger. That hunger was the only thing I thought was my advantage. He said, my wife didn't understand that at all. He said, we'd have these vicious fights. And he said, it was freezing. So I was broke. We had no money. 
And he said, so I finally went to the public library one day because it was warm. So I didn't want to read anything. So I went in, New York Public Library. So I was hanging out there, and I sat down in this chair, and somebody left a book there. And he said, I, I looked down at this book, and it were the poems of Edgar Allan, stories of Edgar Allan Poe. And he said, so I started reading it, and he said, I got totally into Edgar Allan Poe. And he said, I know everything about it. And he goes on for another 20 minutes telling me about Edgar Allan Poe. He knows everything, how he died, what it was about, what really happened. And I said, well, what did Poe do for you? He said, Poe got me out of myself. He got me to think about how I could touch other people and not worry about myself so much. And he said, maybe decide to become a writer. I said, just imagine Rocky the writer, right? And he said, so I tried to write a bunch of screenplays. Nothing worked, nothing worked. I was totally broke. He said, I didn't even have 50 bucks. And he said, and finally, he said, I sold a script. It was called Paradise Alley. He said, it's a movie I made many years later, but I sold it. And he said, I sold it for 100 bucks. He said, but 100 bucks was a ton of money, man. I was so thrilled. I thought, I'm on my way. But it never led to anything. And he said, so finally, he said, I kept going and going and going. He said, finally, we were so broke. He said, I hawked my wife's jewelry. He said, Tony, there's some things in life you should never do. He said, that was basically the end of our relationship. She hated my gut so much. He said, now we were so broke, we had nothing, no food, no money. And he said, the one thing I loved most in the world was my dog. He said, I love my dog because he gave me unconditional love, unlike my wife. And he said, so what happened was, though, we were so broke that to survive, I couldn't even feed my dog. So I went to a liquor store. He said, it was the lowest day of my life. And I stood outside the liquor store trying to sell my dog to strangers. He said, I tried to sell my dog for 50 bucks. And he said, that finally, this one guy negotiated with me and bought my dog for me, my best friend on earth, for $25. He said, I walked away from there and I cried. He said, it was the worst thing that ever happened in my life. He said, two weeks later, I'm watching a fight between Muhammad Ali and Weppner, this white guy that's getting bludgeoned but just keeps on coming even though he gets the hell beat out of him. And he said, I got an idea. He said, I, as soon as the fight ended, I started writing. He said, I wrote for 20 straight hours. I did not sleep. I wrote the entire movie in 20 hours straight. Right then, saw the fight, wrote the movie, whole thing, done. He said, I was shaking at the end. I was so excited. He said, I really knew, man. I knew what I wanted. I knew why I wanted it. He said, just like you teach that formula. He said, but I said, man, I took the action. Now it's time to deliver. And so he said, I went out and started trying to sell it to agents. And they all would read it. And they'd say, you know, this is predictable. This is stupid. This is sappy. He said, I wrote down all the things they said. And I read them the night of the Oscars when we won. He said, it was really good, right? The greatest revenge is massive success. <laughs> and he said, so what happened was, he said, I kept going, trying to sell it, trying to sell it, nobody going, I'm broke, I'm starving. He said, finally, I meet these guys, they read it, and they believe in the script, and they love it. And they offer me $125,000 for my script. I said, oh, my God, you must have been out of your mind. He said, I was. I said, just one thing, though, guys, you've got to deal based on one thing. And they said, what's that? He said, i got a star in it. They went, Pfft. What are you talking about? You're a writer. He said, no, no, I'm an actor. Said, no, 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 you're a writer. Said, no, no, I'm an actor. That is my story, and I'm Rocky. He said, i got to play it. You know, i got to be the head person. i got to be the starring role. And they said, there's no way. We're not going to pay you $125,000, take some no-name, and stick you in that and throw our money away. We need a star, you know? And they want to have Ryan O'Neal play Rocky to give you a picture. Can you imagine? <laughs> That's who they picked, right? And so he said, no way, Ryan O'Neal isn't Rocky, I'm Rocky, went through this whole thing, right? They finally, he said, they said, well, take it or leave it. He said, I left the room. I said, if that's what you believe, you don't get my script, and he left. Here's a man with no money, none, totally broke, offered $125,000, more money than seen in his lifetime, and he walked away because he knew his real what? Knew his real what? And why he wanted, he was committed to it. 
So he said they called him a few weeks later, and they came and brought him back, and they offered him a quarter of a million dollars not to star in his own movie. He turned it down, $250,000. They came back, their final offer was $325,000. They wanted this thing. He said, not without me, and they said no. They finally compromised, and they gave him $35,000 and points in the movie, because they said, if this is going to happen, then you're going to take the risk with us. And the bottom line is, we don't think it'll work, but at least we won't spend a bunch of money on you. And they only spent a million dollars to make Rocky, and it grossed $200 million at the time. I mean, it was done pretty well. But what's interesting about this is, here's he, I said, what'd you do? I mean, even 35000 it's not a quarter of a million. That's a lot of money when you don't have 25 bucks. I said, what's the first thing you did? I figured you went out and partied or something. He said, I went to that liquor store for three straight days and hoped that the man who had my dog frequented the store. He said, because I want to buy back my dog. I thought that was so cool, right? That was really cool. I said, what happened? He said, third day I was there, this guy walks by, and I see him, and I can't believe it, and there's my dog. And I looked at him, and I said, sir, remember me? And he said, it had been about a month and a half by the time this had all come about. And he said, remember me? You know, I'm the guy who sold you the dog. And I goes, yeah, yeah, I love the dog. He said, look. He said, I was so broke. I was starving. He's my best friend. I'm sure you love him, too. But i got to have him black. Please, I beg of you. He said, I'll pay you $100 for the dog. I know you paid me $25, but I'll give you $100. And the man said, absolutely not. No way. My dog now, you can't buy him back. Right? And Sly said, you know, Tony, you know how you say know your outcome? I said, yeah. He said, I knew it. And he said, I kept changing my approach. So I went, $500 for the dog. The guy said, absolutely no way. He said, $1,000 for my dog. The guy said, no amount of money on earth is ever going to get this dog for you. I said, what did you do? He said, I knew my outcome, right? Because he listened to these tapes, kept doing them. He said, I decided to take massive action. He said, I got my dog. I just kept changing my approach, so I got it. I said, what it cost you? $15,000 and a part in Rocky. The guy's in Rocky. You know that dog in Rocky, Butt Kiss? That's Sly's real dog, right? That's the dog. He bought him back. So, so he put his dog in the movie, and he put the guy in the movie and paid 15 grand while he had 35000 Isn't that pretty cool? Pretty awesome. So there's always a way if you're committed. Just got to keep changing your approach. Wow. Keep changing your approach. There is always a way. There is always going to be a way. There's going to be hundreds of ways to learn how to get to that one way. And I'm not going to say the F word because there really is no failure. There really is none. There is just a growing experience. And, you know, wow, what a, what a, what a success story. You know, you, you have to know that your purpose, what you're doing, what you're going for is your purpose. And as long as you know it's yours, you can do it. You can get it. And you know what? I have one more inspirational message for you. And then we're going to go ahead and go into our uh, interviews for the day. Let me find this one here. Never be broke again. If you're willing to hear me, what your biggest problem is. You think you shouldn't have them. Problems are what make us grow. Problems are what sculpt our soul. Problems are what make us become more. 
If we can realize that life is always happening for us, not to us, game over. All the pain and suffering disappears. Your problem is your gift. People want to find an ending. There isn't an ending. You're never going to be truly happy. You're never going to be truly sad if you just continue. That's just life. You get a journey, you get one ride at this thing, and then when it's over, it's over. Because the moment you think you have security, the moment you get complacent, is the moment you die. I think it's important people write down their goals, because otherwise they'll just find themselves in the rat race, continuing, continuing. Now to achieve success in every area of your life, you have to develop the habits of highly successful and hardworking people. Successful people understand that they must work in a straight line to get from where they are to where they want to go without diversion or distraction. If you want to accomplish your goals, you must be sure that everything you do is taking you in that direction and then develop good habits to get you there. We all have a habit of hesitating. We have an idea, you're sitting in a meeting, you have this incredible idea, and instead of just, you know, saying it, you stop and you hesitate. Now what none of us realize is that when you hesitate, just that moment, that micro moment, that small hesitation, it sends a stress signal to your brain. It is easy to be motivated to succeed in the beginning of an endeavor and when you are close to the end. The most difficult part and the part where people quit is when they are in the thick of it and it is unclear whether they have the strength and stamina to make it the rest of the way. I'm never going to feel like doing the things that are tough or difficult or uncertain or scary or new, so I need to stop waiting until I feel like it. Whatever you focus on, you'll feel, even if it's not true. And so decisions shape destiny. It's not our conditions, it's our decisions about what to focus on, what, we, what the meaning is, and what we're going to do. But we focus on a very small part of life, and whatever we focus on, we feel. You don't just get a result without some kind of action, without some form of ritual. Ritual meaning actions you do consistently. Now, do you think those people that are out there working out five days a week, do they have more time than you do? Or I have, or anybody else? Of course not. Is their life less busy? Of course not. It's just a must for them. They must work out that way, and they've made that turn, their life changed. Take these huge challenges you got, break them down into little bite-sized steps. Little things you do each day that after you do them, you get so much momentum that it's easy to succeed. You're not overwhelmed. You have these victory day after day after day on little things. You literally just condition your body and emotion with a couple little rituals. So it doesn't matter what's going on in your world. You feel that strength and it's not fake. It's not some pump up. It's coming from inside you and it works. Rituals define us. See. All the results in your life are coming from your rituals. They start with a standard and then have rituals that follow it up. Success and failure are not giant events. They don't just show up. You don't just suddenly become successful or suddenly have this cataclysmic event that makes you fail. It may look that way, but failure comes from all the little things. It's failure to make the call. It's failure to check the books. It's failure to say, I'm sorry. It's failure to push yourself to do things physically that you don't want to do. 
And all those little failures day after day come together until one day some cataclysmic event happens and you blame that. That event happened because you missed all the little stuff. And success, by the way, is not some overnight event. It's all these little things. Success is having a vision. Success is making it compelling. Success is really seeing it, feeling it every day with strong enough reasons. Success is feeling the sense that I'm here to grow and I'm here to give something to the world more than just myself. Success is caring about other people. Success is calling and saying, I love you, in the middle of the day for no damn reason. You need to have some rituals, some cool things you do that nobody else does that gives you a better life than anybody else has. All the little stuff. That's where success comes from. You just have a vision and you don't have the ritual, stop lying to yourself. What's been your biggest accomplishment, you think? Bouncing back, number one, is refusing to listen to the negative chatter in my own head, refusing to uh, listen to other people's perception of me, creating something from absolutely nothing. So I got, you know, there's the books, there's the TV, there's the, all that stuff. But my biggest accomplishment is being willing to give myself a thousand second chances. And every time I got to 9.99, I pressed reset. Yeah. I didn't ask permission, I gave notice. Yeah. At some point, I have to stop asking, can I be great? Can I be brilliant? Can I be okay and still be accepted? I just stopped asking permission and just gave notice unapologetically, and not in a braggadocious way, not in a way that shrunk anyone else, in a way that said, I only got one life, and I'm going to ride this one till the wheels fall off. And then all the other stuff came. Wow. As a result of a decision I made. Right. But it was a decision. You... It was a decision. But it was, and it didn't come from, you know, a motivational experience. It didn't come from a, an inspiring teacher. It came from hitting rock bottom. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about that. Because yeah. this was the thing that when you and I were talking that really s struck me. Because I had been there. Yeah. And I just wanted to hear how you had turned it around because you can be rock bottom yeah. and turn it around that's the best turnaround because at rock bottom hell ain't no other way right. to go right you got to go right. up so right. that's a great time you climbed to the top tell everybody about this journey i struggled all through school the last time i took english class i got a fail and my english teacher said i was the weakest writer she ever met in her entire life the last time i took a speech class same year i got a d minus in speech and my speech teacher said lisa quote unquote i recommend you never speak in public that you get a desk job so that was the beginning of my life that was the that was my 19 year old experience and then I go on and I'm trying to figure it out trying to figure it out I was obedient I went and got a job in accounting I was in the collection department for seven years y'all don't know I'm dangerous to accounting I'm, <laughs> I'm just dangerous and I'm in collections and you know you should never put a broke person in collections <laughs> Never, because everybody's reasons sound good to me. Not, not, I know it sounds funny, but it was real. Not only did I say, girl, don't you worry about paying that. I'm going to take your name off the list. <laughs> Somebody went to jail because I was in I got fired from five different jobs. And then I got pregnant with my son unexpectedly. And then at eight months, my son's father went to prison. I had to get on government assistance to have my baby. I was on WIC, Women, Infant, and Children, to feed my child. And when my son was eight months old, I went to the ATM to get $20 out the bank because I didn't have any Pampers for him. And in order to get $20 out, you got to add $20 in. I had $11.42. And I still can't tell the story without getting emotional because it's my story. Mm -hmm. For two days, I had to wrap my son in, in a towel. But something happened, Steve, in those two days. I was at rock bottom. I was broke. 
and I was broken. Inglewood, California, my son laying on his back at eight months. I have a towel over him, and I have my hand on his stomach saying, don't you worry, Jelani. Mommy will never be this broke again. And I made a decision. I was bankrupt. And every stinking thinking I had, I was bankrupt and trying to protect my pride. I was bankrupt and trying to be all that in a bag of chips and a bowl of grits falsified. I was bankrupt and trying to not ask anyone for help. I was bankrupt in everything that was holding me and keeping me where I was. I've always talked a good game, but I wasn't doing anything with my gift. And all that thing about potential, I was tired of having potential. I wanted to have my now. And I looked at that baby at eight months and I said, I want to transform your life. Because you didn't ask to come into this chaos. As an African-American male child in South Central Los Angeles, with a single mother whose father's in prison, he had a 66% chance of going to prison himself. Not on my watch. Mm. Not on my watch. So if I have to be willing to drastically transform myself so that I can become the woman that I know I can be. Right. And that's what I began to do. I was radical. What did you do, Lisa? What, what did you do to change your life? First, um, I realized I couldn't grow with people who were struggling like me. That whole, I don't want to leave nobody behind. No, I don't want to stay with y'all. Right. You don't even, you don't even want to be here. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't want to be the queen of this block. Yeah. And I became okay with the fact that it doesn't make me any less committed to my community, committed to my culture, committed to my family. The best thing I can do for you is not stay here with you. That's right. When I got that, I went to places I'd never seen before. I went to conferences where people were talking about money, talking about prosperity, yeah. talking about, it was like, no, I'm lying, what y'all talking about? ROIs and PPMs and term agreements and capital fundraising and bottom lines and what is it? What, what? I'm, I'm going to stay until I learn what you're talking about. I went to the same conference 42 times. And there I raised $532,000 in capital for my company to start my dream. And my dream was to transform teen lives. I want to teach teens how to fall madly in love with themselves and how to make integrity-based decisions. And I got it funded, and I started working. And that was the beginning of me rescuing myself. I realized that I am my rescue. No one else is my rescue. Anybody can dream it, but you'll never see it until you're willing to be committed to it. I was telling somebody the other day, when I didn't have anything, church didn't have any members, I'd get off work, working at Carbide, and drive up the roads and work on the church till I had to turn around and go back to work. We worked when we didn't have food. We worked when we didn't have lights. I was putting my whole check in the offering, all of it, trying to keep it going. When I finally got some staff, I went on the road preaching, and whatever I made on the road preaching, I brought it home to make the payroll of the staff. And sometimes I got them paid and couldn't pay me. Commitments, looked like a fool, didn't have any clothes, suits was falling off me. Lying and wore out my clothes. Couldn't send them to the cleaners. Had to wash my suit in the washing machine. They laughed at me. Looked like an old raggedy country preacher. I had holes in my shoes. 
I couldn't kneel down and pray because if I knelt down to pray, they would see holes in my shoes. They laughed at me. They said, that boy's lost his mind. He'll never be nothing. He stutters. He's got a list when he speaks. He'll never be a preacher. I don't care what you say. If you are committed to what you believe. If I think I cannot do it, I already cancel it. Yeah. Some really crazy things that I believe I can do it, I already do it. Like what? Like jump, jump over the building, you know, uh, crash by the hovercraft, um, um, jump from the light, 72 feet high with no net. And there's so many things, so many things. Uh, even, even today I look at the uh, the old film, look at myself. Sometimes really smile. I'm glad. Even I know I get hurt, I broke my ankle. I'm so happy I did it. If today I cannot do it anymore, yeah, I'm. I'm so whatever you want to do, what, whatever you, I always tell the students, whatever you do, do the. When you're young, do it. You might get hurt, or you're learning a piano, you're learning a, a martial art. Between between ten or twenty, ten years, learn whatever you can. Those years, like me, I just do. Ten years later, now forever, the things you learn, or the the <clears throat> the success I have, forever. Don't regret one day. Ah, I should do it right now. I should know it's too late. Do it when you were young. I had three rules pretty much that I stuck with practically all the time. I'd learned these prior to coming to UCLA and I decided they were very important. One was never be late. Never be late. Um, uh, later on I had, I had certain things that I had, the players if we're leaving for someone they had to be neat and clean. There was a, a time when I, I made them wear uh, um, uh, jackets and shirts and ties but, and then I saw our Chancellor coming to school in, Long in the Denims and, and Turtlenecks, and I thought it was not right for me to keep this other, so I let them just, they had to be neat and clean. And I had one of my, uh, one of my greatest players that you probably heard of, Bill Walton. He came and, uh, and gets the bus, we were leaving for somewhere and to play, and he wasn't clean and neat, so I, I would let him go. He couldn't get on the bus, he had to go home and, and, and get cleaned up to get to the airport if he did. So I, I was a stickler for that. I believed in that. I believe in time, very important. I believe you should be on time, but I felt a practice, for example, we start on time, we close on time. The youngsters didn't have to feel that we're going to keep them over. When I speak at coaching clinics, I often tell young coaches, and the coaching clinics, more, more or less, they'll be the younger coaches uh, getting in the, in the profession, that, and most of them are young, you know, and, and probably newly married, and I tell them, don't run practices uh, late because you'll go home in a bad mood and, and that's not good for a young married man to go home in a bad mood. When you get older, when you get older, it doesn't make any difference, but... Uh, <laughs> so I did believe on time. I believe starting on time and I believe closing on time. And another one I had was not one word of profanity. One word of profanity and you, you are out of here for the day. If I see it in a game, you're going to come out and sit on the bench. And the third one was uh, never criticize a teammate. I didn't want that. I used to tell them I was paid to do that. 
That's my job. I'm paid to do it. Pitifully poor, but I am paid to do it. Not like the coaches today, for gracious sakes, no. Uh, It's a little different than it it was in my day. But those are the three things that I uh, stuck with uh, pretty closely all the time. And uh, uh, those actually came from my dad. And that's what he tried to uh, teach me and uh, my uh, brothers at one time. You are responsible for your life. I've known this. I've known this since the color purple. In 1985, I've probably told you the story when I did the color purple, but in 1985, I did the color purple. Prior to that, I had read the book, Larry. And this is, a, this is when I got the secret thing, but I didn't know it was called the secret. I read the book, The Color Purple, and then went out and got books for everybody else I knew. And I was obsessed about this story, obsessed about it. I ate, slept, thought all the time about The Color Purple. I moved to Chicago. I get a call from a casting agent asking, would I like to come and audition for a movie? I've never gotten a call in my life from anybody for a movie or anything like that. And I say, is it The Color Purple? And he says, no, it's a movie called Moonsong. And I go, well, I've been praying for The Color Purple. And I go to the audition, and of course it was The Color Purple. I audition. I don't hear anything for months. And I go to this this fat farm, and I think it's because I'm fat, because I was about 212 pounds at the time. And I think, I didn't get the call back because I'm so fat. And I'm at this fat farm, and I'm praying and crying, saying to God, help me let this go, because I wanted to be in this movie so much. I wanted it, I wanted it, I wanted it. I thought I was going to be in the movie. There's all these signs that I should be in the movie. And I go to this fat farm, and I'm praying and crying. And as I'm on the track singing this song, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my Blessed Savior, I surrender all. I'm singing that song, praying and crying. A woman comes out to me, and she says, on the track, it's raining, and she says, there's a phone call for you. And the phone call was Steven Spielberg saying, I want to see you in my office in California tomorrow. Now, what I learned from that, that moment absolutely changed my life forever, because I had drawn the color purple into my life. I didn't know Steven Spielberg. I didn't know Quincy Jones, who saw me in Chicago in 1984. He was, he was there for a lawsuit that was being filed against Michael Jackson because he'd been working on his, his Thriller album. And he saw me on AM Chicago and said, that's Sophia. Now, I didn't know him. I didn't know anybody that had anything to do with that. But I knew that I had drawn that into my life. And it changed the way I thought about my life forever. Dear son-in-law, Miss Seeley. You keep on advising him like you do. It is very true that the way you think creates reality for yourself. There are other factors going on. So it's not everything, but you really can change your own reality based on the way that you think. Yeah, I graduated college and I have, you know, this degree in fine arts. And my dad saw me coming and going to work every day. And he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, making a living. What are you talking about? And I was in a transitional period because my son and father and I, we had just broken up and I had this degree and I was just living. And my dad saw it and he was like, how do you expect to catch fish on dry land? And I was like, what? He always spoke in metaphors. <laughs> I was like, can you just speak plain English? He was like, how are you going to get acting jobs when they're not here? You need to go to L.A. where the jobs are. So my family threw a party, we were broke, they raised $700, and I moved to L.A., and I took my son in, my dad may rest in peace, he um, 
was like, maybe you should leave Marcel here. And I was like, I'm not leaving my son. He's my kid. And then I got out and freaked out. I said, maybe I should send him back. And my dad was like, no, that's your blessing. He's your blessing. He's going to keep you focused. You were right. Your instinct was right. You should have taken him. So $700. My son is now 21. He's in school now. He's in his youth studying the music. Right, and look at me. <laughs> so that's a good story. That's amazing. You can. You can do it. All you have to do is believe. I have seen so much evidence where people have thought it, and their whole goal was just one thing or this, this, this thing, and their mind can just picture it. They could just picture it in their mind, and they pictured it all the time, and guess what? It happened. Now, I'm not to say that, oh, out of the blue, you don't have to do nothing to get this done. No, what I'm saying is that you believe it and your goals will help you achieve it, but you have to believe it. If you don't believe it, then it's never going to happen. If you don't think it up, if you can't imagine it, if you can't, if you can't believe that you will be successful, if you can't believe that there is a point in your life where all the hard work that you've you've gone through, everything that you've gone through, all the trials, all the tribulations lead to this one great thing that you want, then you will never get it. But if you can believe, if you can believe, how they say, you can achieve. (laughs) If you believe that your goals, every little micro goal that you have, that you've set for yourself, everything that you've done for yourself up to this point, is all for one purpose. When that purpose does come to fruition, you will be happy. And you will see all the little steps that it took to get there. And, you know, it is so worth it. Now, again, money cannot make you completely happy. It can make you debt-free but not completely happy. You know, happiness doesn't come from your goals. Happiness comes from the inside of you. It's your choice. These are choices that you make. You move towards your goals because you have the choice to. Now, have you ever seen anybody who made it huge and did nothing, who made it huge and never came up with anything, never thought about it, never never dreamt about it, never even, they just made it huge. That was it. They just made it huge. Or have you ever seen someone that worked so hard and they just never made it? They worked so hard and they just never got to where they were supposed to be in life. Well, there's things that we have to do to get to the goal. There's places that we have to go. And a lot of times, and I'm going to say it, we miss the ball. Does everybody want to be famous? No. Does everybody want to have a million dollars? No. But does everybody want to be happy? Yes. Do we all want to do the things in life that we want to do for the rest of our life? Are we, are we stretching and imagining stretching the imagination, you know, dreaming up those goals, dreaming up those visions, going for the gusto. Are we all doing that? No. I could name a few people in my life that all they did was complain. Complain about not having, complain about how uh, somebody else pushed them down. And that's their life. 
and I don't associate with that person anymore. It brings you down, too. It brought brought me down. We all have a responsibility to ourselves and choices that we have to make, and sometimes those choices are, are not easy at all. All I'm saying is we all have these things in life that we are responsible for. But the biggest thing that we're having like us that we're responsible for is ourselves. Now, Oprah talked about the law of attraction. Some people believe in it. Some people don't. I think like this. We're to believe that we could achieve something. And we really wrote it down. And we focused on that one thing. And every micro goal we had was toward that one thing. And you believe it and you thought about it and you kept working toward it. You will eventually get to the path that will take you down the road to achieve your goal. Is that the law of attraction? To me, that is. Because I can't sit here and say, oh, come to me, <laughs> and then everybody comes to me. Come to me what? What do you mean, come to me? No. It's hard work. It is. It's hard work. Excuse me. I am I am um, pushing it tonight, but that's what it takes. When when you think you can't anymore, just push a little harder. When you when you believe that, oh my gosh, it's just the end of the day, and I just can't, I can't, I can't. Guess what? You push a little harder because you can. You can't achieve that goal. You will achieve that goal. You know, this is something that you have to believe in order to get. If you don't believe, you will never achieve it. This is just, it's not something that's going to fall in your lap. And how do I know this? Oh, well, let me think. I just can't believe that all of this, what has happened to me in my life, could have even possibly dropped in my lap. If I didn't go towards the goals I set for myself throughout these years, I have done so much to go towards my goals. My goals may not be superstardom yet. It may lead me there, though, because I can see myself on the Madison Square Garden stage. I can see myself there. I can see myself in front of thousands of people. I can see people coming. I can see that. And so my brain is wired that way. And I want to and I will believe that I'm working towards those goals. What are you working toward? That's what you have to ask yourself. What is that ultimate destination? What do you want to achieve? Have you done anything to achieve these goals? Have you written them down? Have you thought on them? Some people believe in prayer. Have you prayed on them? Can you picture yourself there? When you close your eyes, what do you see? 
your vision for yourself? Have you set goals, attainable daily goals, just as well as attainable monthly and yearly goals? These are all the questions that I asked myself. About a year ago, I really decided that Dream Chasers Radio was something I really, really wanted to build. And before that, it really didn't matter to me whether I could build it or not because it wasn't something that I really wanted to do. It was just something I did on the side. But as people called in, as people get more and more involved with the show, as they listen more and more, I get more and more downloads. And people share the show with their friends. And now it's on iTunes and this and that and the other. I'm going, oh, my gosh. I was even on the top ten list a couple of months ago. You know how hard it is to get on the top ten? I could see it. I could see it. I could visualize it. Now, you you risk people telling you that you're stuck up. You risk people saying that. I mean, that's just a risk you're going to have to take. You have to believe. And even if you really don't truly believe, you have to begin to walk the walk. You have to. So you have to say, yes, I deserve it. I worked hard. I deserve it. Even though you don't, maybe you don't really believe you do, but you have to say it. You have to believe it. And you have to go beyond even your own doubts and your own thoughts. 2002. Oh, my gosh, in 2002, that is, oh, wow, that's 16 years ago. I met a gentleman in, like, 2000. Yeah, a little bit earlier than that. His name is Walter Clyde Orange. Wonderful person, him and his wife. Great people. And if you know who I'm talking about, great. If you don't, that's fine. Well, we we did a project with Craig Gianto. Craig Gianto was just a person that I met while singing on the beach. And he came up to me and he said, I have this project. And I said, great, I have the perfect person. We can, you know, you pay him and you can use his studio. And I'm sure he'll he'll join us on the project. It'll make the project even bigger. And, and he said, yeah, okay, cool. So we ultimately did the project. Within a year, we got notice from Craig, hey, we're up for eight Grammys. Hey, yeah, yeah. You're up for writing. You're kidding me, right? <laughs> I wrote some of those songs on the CD. It was all for charity. But to go up for the Grammys, oh, my gosh. That was a great year. Not to say that any year after that wasn't just as good because it was. But it was, I could see it. But I didn't see it with someone else's project. I saw it with my own. You have to believe that you have worked hard, that you have worked hard enough to deserve the rewards of reaching your goal, even though sometimes maybe you may think it is a little stuck up. But that's okay. It's okay because you've worked hard for it. 
And so, okay, so you think you're stuck up. <laughs> I think I'm stuck up at times because people say, well, hey, Yaya, you think you deserve it? Yes. Yes. Because when I'm sitting here in my office or if I'm in the studio, I'm giving it my all. So, yes, I do deserve it. Wow. So the question you really ultimately have to ask yourself is, do you believe that the work you put into this project, to this goal, is worthy of you saying, yes, I deserve it? When we all think about it, when you think about all the work you put into something, just to get, some people believe nowhere. But I, I dare you. I dare you to look back because you're not nowhere. You're definitely not where you were. You may not be where you think you should be at that moment. Maybe there have been many ups and many downs. Through it all, you persevered. You've learned a lot. And look, look at it. Your baby's growing. It's like a baby. Okay, you just have to, you're born and you can't even feed yourself. I mean, a business is born and, and it can't even feed itself. It has no money to rejuvenate itself. Believe me, I know. But then it grows a little and you're like, okay, now you got to reinvest the money that you've made. Don't worry, it's okay. It's going to be fine. All I'm saying is believe. Believe in that goal. Believe that you deserve it because you do. If you're working, if you're working hard toward your goal, you do deserve it. And I just want to take that time to kind of show you some stuff that I listen to, some inspirational uh, messages I listen to on a daily basis. And those are a couple of them that I listen to. And I wanted to share that with you because I want you to see that, you know, even I need inspiration. And I don't even know if people even think I do, but I do. I do. You inspire me. And on that note, I have my first guest on the line. Please tell everybody who you are and what you do, please. Hi, this is Kaden. Oh, sorry. I'm actually Kaden's mom. This is Andrine, Baltimore. Uh-huh. And I have my. Can you hear me, Kaden? Yep, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you fine. Thank you. Good. Yes, um, and I have Caden Baltimore with me. Caden is an 11-year-old author. He just wrote his first book, and we are Aww. promoting the book. He's 11. Oh, my gosh. So, Caden, is Caden there? He's right here. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Hi, Caden. Hi. What? Hi. So, Kaden, okay, tell me about your book. My book is about fantasy horror, about two 12-year-old boys. They're a best friend. One of them makes a deal with a fallen angel and turns um, into a, a hulking beast that just goes on a rampage, and his best friend puts his life on the line and tries to save him. Kaden, that is awesome. 
Thank you. How, I mean, you're 10 years old, right? When you were 10 years old, 11. you did this book. You're 11 now. Oh, my God. I started, I started when I was 10, um, uh-huh. and I'm 11 now. It was published wow. last Hello? Hello? We're here. Yep. It was, okay, it was published when? It was published last month. Awesome. Now, Caden, Caden, let me ask you, what did it take for you to write this book? So, it took me, uh, it took me, when I, when I, a little while, uh, roughly uh, about three, four months, I started um, last year, November, and... I think that's how long it took me. Wow, Kaden. Do you know how smart you are? Yes, very smart. (laughs) (laughs) I know, that's right. (laughs) Now, Kaden, did anybody else, like in school, did they know you were writing a book? Yes, a couple of my friends do. I normally will talk to them over Xbox or at school, and I will tell my friends. And some of my teachers even bought the book. What? Awesome. So what do they think about your book? Um, They think it was pretty good. One of them, um, which was the principal, said about um, publishing it on the, I mean, putting it on the school website. Awesome. Oh, my gosh. So how do you feel that now you are an author with a published book? I feel great. I love it, Kaden. I love it. Mom, let me ask you a question. Yes, I'm here. Okay. So when Kaden was writing his book, did he ask you for help? How did that go between you? Did you help him? Did you see how he was writing the book? Um, and how did you feel uh, when Caden told you really? that he was going to write a book? Well, he first came home with the idea and and said, oh, I'm writing a book. So we looked at what he wrote, and between his dad and I, we, we both read the book, and we're like, oh, that's pretty good, you know, so we wanted to encourage him. So we, his dad started helping him as far as editing the book, and from there we took it to the next step, got it edited, form, formatted, and then now published. Awesome, awesome. I, I love it. I love that Caden did this. Now, now that Caden is a, you know, a, a published author, what direction is Caden taking this? Does Caden want to write another book? Uh, do you it want him to write another book? book? Um, I will write six books. Woo! And then my husband is right here. He can actually can tell you a little bit more about about the the series. Um, versus me, because you know they've been working alongside with each other, creating the the books. So I'll let his name is Marvin. Here's Marvin. Hello, Hello Marvin. Hello. How, you how, how are you? Doing all right. I am. I am so proud of Caden. How did you feel when he he wanted to do this? I mean, this this whole thing is not a typical eleven year old thing. Not even a ten year old thing. I know that's what kind of uh, 
may be apprehensive at first because when you first uh, read the book, it's like um, some of the things in there are kind of like Stephen King dark. <laughs> so uh, when I read it, I was I, mean, I was afraid if people read it, it'd be like, well, what kind of kid are they raising, <laughs> you know, because it was kind of, of a dark, dark fantasy. So it kind of scared me a little bit reading. But as I got off into the story, I saw where it was going. I was like, um, wow, it blew me away. So I wanted to uh, encourage his writing. So we decided to, uh, he would, we would bounce ideas off each other, and I would try to put uh, Caden's ideas and thoughts onto paper, and here we are. Mm. Mm. Now, okay, so Caden now is a published author, and, and what direction do you guys want to take it? I mean, I know Caden's involved with all this because obviously he's, he's the brains behind the book, okay? Um, but where, where do you think Caden should go now? Well, I know right now um, we're working on, because he usually has issues at school, you know, with ADHD and things of that nature. So we want to uh, donate some of the proceeds to the books to a certain type of ADH uh, foundation. We're still looking to see which one would best uh, suit um, him. So we're we're in the process of that. But right now, Caden wants to write at least six additional books based upon this series, and he wants to and he also wants to do two spinoff series um, along with that as well. Oh my gosh! Wow. I mean, to me, this is wonderful. It's great news. You know, uh, the the thing is, you, you got to understand. This is not typical, and now you're saying ADHD and everything? Yeah, because um, for some strange reason, he could sit down and he could just write this story for hours, and it pretty much calms him down, and he could uh, really concentrate and focus and just let his imagination flow. So we definitely want to uh, encourage that because we didn't know he had such a wild, vivid imagination like that to, to write stories like this. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, okay. So the predetermination that children with ADHD, with children with, with focus issues, can't focus is out the door. Right. I love it. He just mm-hmm. proved them all wrong. Did you know that? He just proved everybody wrong. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Absolutely. Amazing. You have an amazing son. So, Caden, can I ask you a question? Yes. What do you want your books to tell people? I want my book to tell people that I want my book to tell people that I care about people that have ADHD like me. Um, I want them to know that I want them to enlighten. People, and I want to make encourage people that has ADHD to focus on my book and and. He's just a little nervous right now because he knows other people are listening. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, but he pretty much wanna, he, he just pretty much want people to be encouraged by you know his words and basically if he can do it anybody can. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And tell Kaden, I said thank you so much for even coming on, because I understand it can be a little bit intimidating when people are listening to you. 
But, Caden, you have such a bright future. Congratulations on everything that you're doing. I am so proud of you. Thank you a lot. Thanks. <laughs> I can't wait for you to put out your other books. You keep proving them wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. And we actually have a website for Caden. So. Yeah, that's why I'm getting ready to ask you now. Yeah. Because Caden is also into video games and comic books. So we want to, we're self-publishing his book, and we're publishing it on his site through Amazon, Barnes & Noble. So we try to get the word out and encourage people to um, to purchase the book and support in any which way they can. Definitely. So tell us, where can, where can people get that? Well, this, um, it's, as stated, is on Amazon, night and day mm-hmm. of the Night and Day of the Blood Crier by Caden Baltimore. Okay. And both ebook and paperback books. Also, we're um we're having his first book signing this coming this coming Sunday, May the twentieth, from two to four, um, in Iowa Colony, which is Iowa Colony is right outside of um the Houston area. Most people know it as Rosharon. So yeah, we have an event right um, set up online, so they can always look it up to get the detail. Okay. Go. All right. That's good. That's good. So and what I just did was I, I went ahead and I shared your Facebook page, Caden, as well as liked your page. And I just hope that, uh, yeah, definitely that everybody sees how smart you are. Thank you. Wow. Well, I want to thank you guys for being on the show. Everybody, all you guys, you have an amazing son. Uh, he has an amazing future, and he he I know he's going to have milestones where they're going to be baffled. Thank you. Yes, thank you. he will. I have to agree. Thank you so much. All right. No problem. And Caden can come back on any time. Thank you so much for being uh, for being on the show. Thank you so much for letting me be on the show, too. Uh, thank you, Kaden. I'll talk to you again soon. I know it. All right. Bye. Okay. All right, bye. Have a good night. <laughs> thank you. you bye bye. Bye. Oh my gosh, Kaden Baltimore, a novelist at ten years, old, eleven years old. He started at ten, and now he's eleven years old. An author, novel, a novel, not just like a novel, a novel. To me, that's amazing. And he said he had ADHD. I would have never guessed. Because why? He was determined. He came home. He said, look, I'm, I, I want to write a book. And he did it. And he published it. To me, that's telling a lot more than me. <laughs> I want to write a book, too. But I haven't sat down all night long to write a book. But a young man at 10 years old could sit down. And write an entire book. I think I got to get on the ball here. Caden, you've inspired me. And you're a dream chaser. True dream chaser, Caden. True, true, true. I want to thank you for being on the show. And thank you for the FM Real Community Radio as well as Bombay Radio and the Dream Chasers Radio Network. Um, well, I'm just going to take a short break because I am so motivated that I need to take a breath here. So, wow, 
Wow, wow, wow. I'll be right back. Don't you go nowhere.
the front door Baby, are you ready? She told me what she wants This is what she's looking for She wants love, 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 love She's looking for love, love, love And baby, I'm the one Uh, takes me to different places. 
And that is what gives me enough material to think, um, analyze, and write. Awesome. Awesome. Wow. Wow. So uh, this book, what is it about? So the name of the book is Pinto Has an Idea. Uh, It's about a scientist who comes from a small town in India. He's discouraged to become a scientist uh, because there is no money in this career compared to other careers like, um, uh, you know, if you become an engineer or a doctor, then you make much more money compared to a scientist. Somehow, after a lot of struggle, he manages to get higher education and starts working as a scientist for a prestigious institution. Uh, His main area of research is uh, like pure science, where he is concentrating uh, about the motion of electrons, protons, and things of that nature. One day, suddenly he gets enlightened that the research he has been part of is never going to be implemented uh, in his lifetime. And he changes the entire direction of his, uh, of his research to solve day-to-day problems. The subject is a little heavy, I would say. It may seem to be a little heavy and intellectual in nature, but at the same time, you know, I know that books are about entertainment. So I have made sure that there is enough humor and entertainment in the book. The story revolves around the main character, Pinto, and his girlfriend, Lavinia, who becomes his wife uh, later. It starts from several funny and emotional events about Pinto's school, college, his meeting with Lavinia, uh, their marriage, and there are all sorts of things, you know, um, which happen in somebody's life. I wanted to give a positive message to the society, uh, as well as, you know, sort of entertain people. Based on several reviews which I have received so far for the book, I think I was able to do justice with both. Now, as you know, most of scientists are too busy with their work. I have tried to depict how Pinto tries to balance out between his love life and work. Uh, That leads to several humorous and funny incidents. Pinto is lazy in nature that helps uh, him invent several things. You, you must be knowing, you know, a lot of things have been invented because people were lazy and they just wanted to uh, do something to, to solve their problems. So that is what Pinto does, and you will find a lot of uh, sort of uh, innovative solutions, innovative problems, and, and innovative events as well in this book. Oh, oh. wow. Wow, that's a lot. How much time did it take for you to write that? I mean, that sounds like it's, it sounds way, like, complicated. Did you have to study for that? Not really. Actually, so uh, I think it, it sounds like way complicated, but it is not. Uh, the kind of um, problems Pinto tries to solve, they are like how to solve issues related to traffic, how to – in fact, he builds a system uh, called GoodNet, along the lines of internet, like internet is the highway for information, goodsnet is the highway for goods. And all these solutions are very simple, but innovative in nature. And uh, you, don't, you do not need to have any kind of science background to understand these things. And as I said, that this is not all about solution, it's about entertainment as well. So. Uh, while working on these things, a lot of funny things happen, and I have given enough focus around those areas 
Now, only thing is that I didn't want to make this book just like a pure sort of romantic novel. Uh, it is a romantic novel for sure, but at the same time, uh, as I said, I wanted to give a positive message. And that positive message is through innovation. Like, people should be innovative. If people are innovative, you know, a lot of problems can be solved in this world. And, you know, all these solutions do not need to be very complicated in nature. They could be very, very simple. And that is what I have tried to uh, showcase. Now, in terms of time, yes, I, you know, these are the ideas which um, do not come in your mind in one day. So, yes, it took some time. I, I had been thinking about it. I was collecting those ideas. Whenever something came to my mind, I would note it down. Also, I am working full-time, uh, as I said, uh, for a software company. So I didn't have a lot of time available for writing. So I would say it took like around three years for me to write this book, which Ooh. sounds like pretty long. But there is another reason as well, because there is a lot of distraction when you write your first book. Um, yeah. You start writing, you do not know the process of writing, and suddenly you start thinking, oh, whether my book is going to be published or not, and then you start searching publishers. Then every publisher has a different style of uh, submission, so you start worrying about that, then you come back and you think, oh, by the way, I, I think I lost the flow. Let me rewrite this. So that process takes some time. Now, if, I, you, know, if you ask me, how much time you would take to write your next book? Uh, I think six months would be more than enough for me to write <laughs> the next book. So, Wow. Wow. Wow, that's a big jump. So was it easy to publish? Oh, it was definitely not. Uh, as a first-time writer, you might have heard several stories that uh, you send your manuscript to uh, different publishers. Sometimes they just um, throw away in, in a trash can. Uh, because there is so much demand and, uh, you know, in terms of publishers, so much demand. So they, they just do not care most of the time. So it was very, very difficult. I mean, I, uh, it, it needs a lot of patience. It took me around, I would say, more than 30 publishers uh, when I found uh, two of them and I selected uh, one of them finally. Uh, it's a very, very frustrating pro process as well because you are sending something in a black hole. You do not know what's going to happen. Publishers write very clearly. They do not contact us. Uh, if, we ha if you haven't heard from us, then think about it that we are not interested. So please do not tr try to bother us all the time. So that's why it needs a lot of patience. Uh, every publisher has different style. Uh, somebody, you know, some publishers want two chapters, some publishers want the entire summary. Uh, some publishers want like just um, first chapter. So, so everybody has a different you know, way of uh, submitting uh, the manuscript. So yeah, it was not that easy. But when I got the news that I've been selected by two publishers, it was like you know, your dream, dream coming true. Uh, so that was very mm -hmm. exciting. Wow. Wow. Okay, so describe your best event, the incident from the book. You know, uh, I'll tell you a small story uh, just to give you the context. When you say describe, you, I think you said the best incident or? Yeah. Yeah, the best <laughs> so, event or incident. Yeah, so, uh, you know, when you uh, go for a haircut, 
for example. And, uh, you know, your hairdresser will work very hard on your hair, no matter what kind of job you do, whether you are, a, you are into fashion industry or you do just a normal job, you are a construction worker, doesn't matter uh, what or how you, you know, people will look at your hair, but for the hairdresser, every hair is important to match with the style what you, what you have asked for. So as an author, you know, every letter, every word, every para, every page, every incident, and every moment has to be described with perfection. So it's kind of very difficult to tell you which is the best incident. Because see, no matter how readers read, uh, author has to do uh, his or her best. Sometimes, you know, readers may have a lot of time to focus on a particular page. Sometimes they are in hurry and they just kind of skim through a particular page. But still, if I have to describe some of the events, uh, you know, there is one incident in the book where uh, Pinto joins the politics uh, to solve the problem around the corruption in the country. So he finds an innovative way, because he is a scientist, so it's not that He's just trying to create a movement of people, and that's how he wants to solve. Of course, that is definitely there. But at the same time, he finds out a very innovative solution to eradicate or to remove corruption uh, from the system. When he joins the politics, some uh, uh, events or some kind of issues come across uh, his journey, and he had to leave uh, politics suddenly. By the time he had become a very, very popular person in politics, and people uh, think about him as, a, as if he's going to sort of uh, take care of them, and he's going to bring a big change in their lives. Uh, but suddenly he had to leave. And that time, the, you know, the people, the way they react, common people, they react that they want him back. That scene is very emotional, how a child reacts that, you know, he's going to get his midday meal in his school, how, a, uh, how an old person reacts uh, that he is going to get uh, their pension, and things like that. So that is, that is very, very emotional. And the, the picture I'm trying to draw here is that generally people hate politicians, but if they do good work, they can be very, very popular. And that kind of gives you the other side of the story. That shows you, you know, uh, that, that, you know, if people work hard, if people, um, you know, they try to uh, solve real problems and they have really uh, honesty uh, in their personality, uh, you know, people would just love you. So I think that is one of the best scenes, I would say. Uh, but... Uh, then there are several other problems which Pinto is trying to solve. Like, for example, he's, uh, uh, I think I already mentioned about GoodsNet, so that whatever, whatever stuff you want to buy from the market that can be delivered to you in no time, and he develops a system for that, a very easy system uh, based on whatever is already available in the market. He works on charity um, ideas where... Uh, suppose something happens in California, for example, uh, 
there is an earthquake in California, God forbid, but uh, suppose it happens, then uh, somebody is donating goods, uh, say, in Europe, uh, so that you know people can get things in California, Pinto develops a system so that those things can be delivered very quickly without worrying about the transportation and time and all that. So, so there are different ideas. I think um, uh, people need to read the book for that. Otherwise, I'll be killing all the suspense. Uh, but yeah, yes. there are several, you know, uh, things of this wow. of this nature. And where can people get your book? Uh, sorry, say it again. Where can people get your book? I'm so sorry. It's uh, the the audio quality is not very good. Where where can people get your book? Oh oh, so it is available <laughs> on Amazon, uh, uh, Amazon.com in US. In India, it has it's available in in you know, different places, uh, including Amazon. Uh, but in US, I think the primary source would be Amazon.com. And if you just type Pinto has an idea, uh, you will be able to find the link over there. So that's the best okay. place. And what about your website? Yeah, I have a website as well. Uh, if you type www.pinto has an idea, P I N T O Pinto has an idea.com, it will take you to the website. It has all the links. Uh, in fact, it has all the press coverage, whatever I've received. Uh, I have got a lot of good endorsements about the book, including uh, one of the Bollywood superstars, uh, I don't know if you <laughs> know her name, Shri Devi, who recently passed away. That was very unfortunate. But uh, mm. I, have got, I have got very good references as well or endorsements as well. Oh, wow. Well, you know, we. I still do hate when people pass away. I really do. Um, and it's, it's really good to see that people that have been here on the earth really love the book as well. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I mean, let me ask you one more question. Who should buy this book? I would say the book is pretty much for everybody. Uh, the, uh, of course, it's not for kids, but I would say older, older uh, kids can also read this book. Anybody who is interested uh, in a couple of things. For example, of course, entertainment is the first thing, entertainment, humor. Somebody who wants to learn about Indian culture in a storytelling fashion, I think they may also read this book, uh, like what kind of struggle uh, people face and then how they become successful, even if they have so much uh, struggle in their life. Um, then how a scientific mind works, that's also very important. How to become innovative. So all these things people will get in a form of a story. So you do not have to really uh, worry about the heavy reading that you are just thinking about a concept and uh, trying to learn about it. Uh, all these concepts, especially around innovation, will be uh, very, very clear to you uh, just by reading this book in a story-like a story uh, fashion. Mm. Mm. Well, wow, thank you so much for being on the show, Rajiv. Oh, Rajiv, right? Yeah, that's right. You got it right. Ah. <laughs> thank, 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 thank you, you so much. much.
I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. Oh, my gosh. What a wonderful book. It's so well thought out. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, so until next time. Wow, wow. What a wonderful, I mean, you know, I mean, it was, it was like from the moment to the moment, it was just bang, bang, bang. I mean, he had this thing like locked down, thought out. Thank you so much, Raji, for being on the show. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Dream Chasers Radio tonight. It has been a wonderful show. Nothing but inspired by everyone that's called in today, by Caden and by Rajiv. Thank you both authors, authors, first-time authors, both of them. And two different spans of of, uh, of the age. We have a, an 11-year-old and we have an older gentleman. Let me tell you something. It is never too old to do what you love to do. Never too old. I want to thank you guys for tuning in. And I have to go. I have some work to do. <laughs> But until next time, you guys, and I always say this, don't forget to watch Dare to be Different, baby. Until next time, good night. (laughs) 